Hello and welcome to Golden Grenades, a weekly podcast about birds with stories from those who worship them. Each week, a special guest chooses the five bird species they would choose to save above all others if humanity continues on its current trajectory of planetary devastation. The five species to lift their spirits as they walk the scorched and flooded landscape we have been warned about but decided to ignore. Still here? Great. It's not all doom and gloom, I promise you. There is also the gladiatorial battle between their favourite bird and mine, the peregrine falcon, which gives this podcast its name. This week, my apocalypse pal is Laura Howard. Laura is a freelance producer working in wildlife television across iconic brands such as Springwatch, BBC Earth and Blue Planet, and has also worked with Chris Packham on various campaigns. She previously made computer games for kids with Ardman animations of Wallace and Gromit fame, and recently spent six months volunteering in the Cairngorms and on Orkney for RSPB Scotland. I first got to know Laura through my alter ego, Yolo Birder, on Twitter when she ran the BBC Springwatch Twitter account in the Minsmere years. She probably confused their legions of followers with my daft tweets about rare birds made out of biscuits and other confectionery and puffins reduced to pie charts. We finally met on the set of Springwatch Unsprung a couple of years ago. Laura, hello and welcome to my daft podcast, Golden Grenades. How are you? I'm good. Hello. And it's very nice to see you. Very, very nice for you to have invited me. Lovely to see you too. I mentioned in the introduction there that you've been involved in some of the real jewels in the BBC's crown over the years. I can't imagine how much pressure that must bring working on these really big flagship shows, but it must be an incredible feeling when it all comes together. It really is. I think it's, um, it can be quite addictive. I think that's probably fair to say. Working on something like the Springwatch series, for instance, you know, that's been going nearly 15 years, I think. And it really feels like you're part of a big family. There's upwards of 100 people that work on that programme. And prior to lockdown, we would all go on location together. And it was just that it's such a great team. It's just lovely to see everybody, you know, two or three times a year, all meet up and get back together. But yeah, kind of when, when it all comes together and it's eight o'clock on BBC Two on the first night, it is just such a great feeling every single time. I think I worked out recently, I'd worked on the watches. I've done 23 series, which is like enough, right? <laughs> yeah, but I've not really gotten bored of it or anything because it's, it's just such good fun. It's always different and... Yeah, there's a degree of pressure, but I think I find live television really exciting. I, it's good pressure, you know. Yeah, I can imagine. I haven't, I haven't been to visit when I came down two or three years ago now, and I was in the unsprung audience just seeing how slick it all is and how huge, but so impressive how everything to the second is, you know, perfectly choreographed and everybody knows their jobs and everybody was lovely as well. That was the other thing I found, you know, like every single person I met on that set was just so nice. And yeah, it was just a well-oiled machine and really impressive yeah. to see in action. I think exactly that. We kind of describe it, we hope, as a well-oiled machine. Sometimes I think it could even be too well-oiled. I think that it, with live television, some, the, the charm and the excitement of it is perhaps when something does go a little bit wrong or not quite to plan, it kind of reminds you it's live. Um, so it's been a shame this year. It's been difficult. I think the audience have really appreciated a bit of a light in the dark. And I think this year people, our audience have been telling us that they've reconnected with nature and with wildlife, perhaps more than they had before. Because of the year that we've all had, um, people have just gone out and found a little bit more on their local patch or their back garden or their park. 
And it's been just so wonderful to be able to showcase that and to, to really see people's enthusiasm about, about what they can see. And I think that's one of the other bits, I suppose, that makes something like working on Springwatch so addictive is that for me, it's always been about the audience, you know, all the way through from Unsprung. But the whole thing, it, I would always, in my head at least, put the audience first and think about, are they going to like this film? Will they understand it? How should we explain that? How can they feel like they can make a difference? What citizen science programs can we show them? You know, uh, what, what bits of user, um, you know, we call it UGC, but, you know, your videos, your photos, what can we incorporate into the show that shows that we're listening um, and that shows that, you know, this actually that thing that you spotted is really interesting or super cool or whatever. And when you say to the audience, hey, why don't you build a wildlife pond in your garden this weekend? And then lo and behold, people get back to us on Twitter or Facebook or whatever, and they show us that they've done it. I think that's just so exciting that we've said, hey, make a pond. And then they go, OK, we will. And then you yeah. see a picture of them with their kids and they've done it. I think that's the best. It is. It's brilliant. It's it's just an infectious enthusiasm, isn't it? I think yeah. that's from the top to the bottom. I think that comes across, you know, not just the presenters, but, you know, the way the shows are put together. And like you say, all of that stuff, the engagement and getting everybody involved at home. Um, I think that's that's what was really interesting about the challenge of working on something like Blue Planet 2. You know, that couldn't be more different, really, from Springwatch. Really high end, great big landmark series watched all over the world by millions of people showcasing you know, huge issues around ocean conservation and the threats of marine life all around the planet. And it's easy, I think, to watch something like that and feel quite helpless. And and we, you know, that, that series, it was filmed over five years. They covered some absolutely fantastic sequences and, and, and species. And it's easy, I think, to be watching that at home and almost be kind of, you know, desperate and even upset and weeping, thinking, what can I do? Um, but we did we worked quite hard behind the scenes with a big range of, you know, UK and global conservation charities to say there are some things you can do, actually. There are some things. And I think off the back of Blue Planet, I think people now talk about the Blue Planet effect as well. Mm. Um, and so many people have, have switched to using reusable cups and reusable bags, not using a straw, thinking about microplastics. So I think working on on the kind of campaign, if you like, around Blue Planet, particularly around engagement and what people can do that was very exciting because we knew it was going to be big and then again seeing that come out it was a bit slower something like spring watch where it's live you're getting that feedback every hour kind of overnight if you like seeing what people are doing whereas with, with blue planet it was more of a slow burner but once that momentum was there it became a real conversation i think i don't know kind of what what your interpretation of it was but it felt like it did make a difference Oh, without a doubt, I think that within sort of days, weeks, you know, people were talking more about these things and, and it just snowballed from there. I, I do think Blue Planet was, was instrumental in recycling and, and like you say, straws, you know, kids were going into schools and writing letters to local shops and, you know, it affected everybody. And I think everybody started thinking more about what they were doing. And Yeah, I think um, as well, if I think back and I might I might have my timeline slightly wrong here. But I think that landed slightly before um, Greta kind of came to the fore. And so what I found really heartwarming was to see just how many kids got engaged and how many schools got engaged and the difference it made to those to children and how vocal they were. And that was, you know, they were almost they weren't a precursor to Greta. I don't mean to imply that the two were linked, but it was interesting, I think, for us as natural history unit, perhaps, to see this wasn't a programme aimed at children. It was you know, possibly aimed at families, 
And yet it galvanized kids in a way that was just remarkable, really amazing. And obviously now where we are now with everything that the young people and schools are doing, largely as a result of Greta, we kind of like to think that we were a part of that, you know, not yeah. not responsible for it, for sure. But I um, don't think you can take that kind of credit. But it, it was it was just amazing to see kids response. Yeah, no, and I, I think you can definitely take some credit for for that. It made it accessible rather than just dry and boring, you know, it was... Well, it's stories, isn't it? This is the thing, stories you know, on that your... power, the power yeah. of that storytelling. And, and you know, they were so emotive. Some of those stories were fantastic. Yeah. Some of them were cheeky and surprising and others were just tragic. But I think those those stories, that's what's really cutting through. Absolutely. It was brilliant. You were telling me earlier, though, that sometimes you know, it all gets a little bit too much and you just have to say, let's take a step back for a bit and have a break. Working in television, it can be, it is fantastic on so many levels, especially if there is a conservation angle to it and you're looking to reach people and to perhaps try and make a bit of a difference. But it is quite relentless as well, um, especially something like a live series like Spring Watch, you know, Spring, Autumn and Winter Watch. It very much dictates your, your year, your calendar. Uh, it takes up most of your summer and then you know that, you know, basically for a couple of months every autumn and every winter that's what you're doing um and that's great it came a point where um my partner and I just thought actually let's take a little step back and take a bit of a break from tv and why don't we kind of you know have a have a go at getting much more involved and hands-on with some of the conservation we've been learning and talking about so doing it for ourselves um so yeah we we actually it was about six months we took in the end um and we were offered a a volunteering opportunity with the RSPB Scotland up in the Butte, amazing Abernethy Nature Reserve in the Cairngorms in Scotland. So we went up there and we had part of our volunteering deal, if you like, is that you're you're given a little house in the woods to live in, which is pretty basic and a bit chilly, but absolutely amazing. I mean, it was like something out of Narnia. I remember one of the first days I got there, there was heavy snowfall. This was, would have been in April. Um, and then I came out in the morning, there was just a m- complete myriad of footprints all around the house of all the different creatures that had come out of the forest during the night. I remember thinking, this is quite the place. So, um, yeah, we were there it's for six light. months. Yeah, it was like, yeah, quite. <laughs> um, it, it was absolutely wonderful, beautiful part of the world. And so we were kind of introduced to Abernethy, if you like, through through the watches, because we did a whole a whole year based at Abernethy up in the Cairngorms on spring watch and then we yeah, made some contact and ended up st- doing our volunteering stint and it was specifically on uh, the osprey project there so it was the first place ospreys nested in the uk after they were effectively made extinct through kind of hunting and persecution they came back and they nested at um, a place called loch garten and that was in the 50s and they kind of nested there ever since and the population's grown hugely to the point now where there's two to three hundred pairs i think of osprey in the uk but ironically, perhaps, the year that we did our Osprey project volunteering, Ospreys never nested at Loch Garten. Oh. So we had an empty nest for our whole summer. Well, you know, what are, what are the chances, you know, especially when they're doing so well? And I think this takes us nicely into the first bird we are going to talk about today, your top five favourite birds. And the first one you've chosen is... Bird number one. one, one, one. The Osprey. It is. It, I mean, they are absolutely remarkable birds. It's, I think that if you see one catch a fish, you just it's insane. 
just incredible what it can do. Um, but it was a bird I hadn't really thought about ospreys much before we went and did that. We cover them a lot on the watches, the, the Welsh population in particular, but I, I hadn't, um, I don't think I'd really seen one or, or perhaps thought about them that much. So then when we get there, obviously anticipation and excitement, oh, are they going to come and nest? They're coming back from Africa. So we were there, I think maybe a month or perhaps six weeks before they were due to arrive back. Uh, and then obviously, inevitably, they, they just didn't, they never came in the end. So, but all that anticipation, will they, won't they? Who are we going to see first on the nest? Will it be her? Will it be him? Which pair will it be? How many chicks will they have? Didn't really happen. But in all that time, we spent so much time talking to members of the public and the visitors to the RSPB centre about osprey and about their biology and their behaviour that I think actually it was it was interesting how much I grew to love them, not even seeing them. And so then when we did get the odd, you know, the nest wasn't totally empty all the time. We got the odd fly by sometimes and osprey would pass over, sit on the nest. Once we saw once or twice one came and had caught a fish elsewhere and ate it on the nest. They just they just didn't actually nest. But come the end of that summer, I just think they're the most just amazing birds. You know, the journey they undertake all the way to Africa and back. I loved as well that these birds will live in hot, hot Africa. And then if they come up to Scotland and arrive in April or something, maybe even early May, they can sometimes be sat in a nest that's completely covered in snow. They can go from those extremes. Yeah, it's a fantastic journey, isn't it? And I think migration, one of the sort of things that's coming out of this podcast, talking to people, is that birds that go away and come back seem to hold a special significance for some of us. And there's not many big birds of prey that, you know, that actually go and make that round trip to Africa and back. Osprey is pretty unique in that sense, especially when you consider them coming to the very north of Scotland as well. Yeah, I know. It was quite interesting as well, kind of learning about how, you know, maybe maybe some of the reasons they would choose Scotland, that it does present them with some suitable nesting habitat, but also the day length there. So in, in high summer, you know, in June up in the Highlands and up in, up in Scotland, they've got maybe 18 plus hours of daylight for fishing. So it makes sense to be in Scotland because they can see their, the fish for you know, 18 hours a day. When you think of it like that, you think, oh, that's just so incredibly adaptable. So yeah, I, I did fall in love with them a little bit. And um, we were very fortunate we were able to meet uh, the conservation legend that is Roy Dennis. And if you're uh-huh. not familiar with Roy, yeah, yeah Roy yeah. Dennis and his Wildlife Foundation. So Roy was worked back in the day with the head of the RSPB in Scotland at the time, George Waterston. Um, and that team helped to encourage Osprey to nest there and and well actually all over but um we were lucky enough to meet roy and um and his team he is a yeah. true legend isn't he i mean the, the the stuff that he's it's sort of spearheaded over the years like ospreys and other big reintroduction projects that we may or may not come to in this podcast but you know <laughs> <laughs> um, well actually one day we were very fortunate we accompanied roy and the team um to an osprey nest nearby and um they were actually scaling a, a hundred foot Douglas fir to collect an osprey chick from that nest and take it down to Pool Harbour. Right. Um, so we went along that day and we watched them uh, climb the tree, him and his team, amazing talent to get up there in the first place and to do it all so quietly and carefully. And then they weigh the chick, sex the chick, brought one down to the ground, established that it was old enough to be translocated. And then that one was taken to Pool Harbour. So we actually got to witness that, which was just amazing to see that chick up close. Fantastic. That project as well. Do you know Emily from the UK Little Owl Project? I think she yeah. she worked with the Roy Dennis team on that and had, had to take some of them down in a car to, to pull up, you know, like a, 
can you imagine hospital. can you imagine pulling into a service station to get a pasty knowing you've got ospreys in the booth yeah. it's brilliant be, isn't it i'll be back in two minutes kids <laughs> no, don't get into too much trouble like a box full of ospreys <laughs> amazing nothing to see here officer yeah <laughs> <laughs> A high percentage of the people that came to the visitor centre actually were coming to see if they could photograph crested tits. They were yeah. like, you know, yeah, sure, ospreys, but they were less bothered about that and they wanted to see crested tits. What made our time there so rewarding was that in the end, because we didn't have osprey, we had to work that that bit harder to, to engage people and still encourage them to come and have a look and show them that, well, actually, we can show you so much more than just the osprey nest. It's empty, but why don't we see if we can find you your very first red squirrel or a crested tit? Yeah. Or a siskin, or even for some some people came, they'd never seen a woodpecker, great spotted woodpecker. So showing somebody just a woodpecker for the very first time, you know, these experiences, they're really amazing to, to be able to share with somebody who's perhaps never seen something that we birders might take for granted. Actually, I really loved it. Amazing. And yeah. then you get to go home to your wooden hut where all of this fantastic wildlife has done your dishes and folded <laughs> your laundry. <laughs> We did have a goshawk in the garden. That was quite something. That, that, that's a dream bird, if ever there was one. A goshawk in your Ama- Amazing. Yeah, there was a nest nearby and you could often hear the young, the juveniles kind of calling out for food. Yeah, it's a, a very special place. Fantastic. Now then, let's move on. Tell us about the second bird you've chosen for us today. Bird number two. two, two, two. During our time at Abernethy, we were afforded an opportunity to take sort of two weeks and go and volunteer on a different reserve. And the, the call went out and Hoy in Orkney came to the rescue. And so we were like allowed to go to Hoy for 10 days. And I've never been anywhere like that before. I mean, it's right up top, isn't it? You're, you're really heading out on two ferries. It was so exciting. Um, but that was to, to um, work on the white-tailed sea eagle project up there. Uh, and so this was 2019 we went. White-tailed eagles were absent there, I believe, for 150 years. Um, and so when we were there, it was the second year in a row that the birds had nested inland on this fabulous kind of cliff face above something called the Dwarfy Stone. And so, you know, not actually at the sea, if you like, but inland quite a bit. And so similar story, really. We lodged with the ranger on Hoy um, and her family. Fantastic I'm just so dedicated and what a place to live. I think she'd been working there for 16 years. Uh, Lee Shields, amazing person. So she showed us around and we accompanied her on her duties. So for the most part, we'd be watching these white-tailed eagles on the nest. There were Initially, I believe there were two chicks, but in the end, there was just the one. But still a success for sure. So we'd be watching them for sort of seven, eight hours a day, just observing and making notes. And if any members of the public floated past, you could, you know, grab them and say, do you want to have a little look through the scope? But you don't get many visitors. <laughs> there, was some, there was some and it was it was fantastic to be able to show people but you're really I mean you're in the middle of nowhere it's incredible so for the most part it's just you and an eagle and maybe the odd raven uh, what was really interesting was the nest was opposite a big hillside covered in sheep and that was a really good education point to be able to tell people that actually these birds they're feeding mostly on rabbits on fulmar maybe other seabirds but you know there was no record and no issues with with regard to livestock and lambs did you ever um, see them taking any sort of dead lambs or, or sickly ones? Because that's the thing, isn't it? That they've got this sort of perception as lamb killers. And it's why they were hunted to extinction as a breeding species in the UK, isn't it? I believe because of that reputation. But even if they did take lambs, it was usually they were already dead or they exactly. were about to die. Yeah. yeah, no, exactly. Our observations, I mean, we were only observing them for 10 days. Lee has been there with the project team 
um, since the birds arrived, so a couple of years, I don't think she had any records of that sort of issue occurring. And as you say, I think any known issues are, yeah, they're either already dead or sickly, but it's still quite rare, I think. And, and what's so interesting is that you see eagles, white-tailed eagles will take such a range of prey. So there's a nice link that through the Roy Dennis project, white-tailed eagles have been reintroduced onto the Isle of Wight. And I was fortunate enough during Autumn Watch to go down to the Isle of Wight and film those birds with Chris Peckham for a film. Just fantastic to see them. We got really close, wonderful views. But what's fascinating about those birds is they're learning and adapting to their habitat and their environment. And they, Isle of Wight was sort of selected as being a great habitat for birds like, like white-tailed eagles. And they're eating things like cuttlefish. They're eating lots of different fish species. They are taking rabbits, carrion. And the, the team are able to assess and look quite closely at what those birds are feeding on. And again, it's not what their reputation would have said. It's not lambs, it's not livestock, but it is all these other really fascinating creatures. I already had a bit of a thing for the white-tailed eagles, it's fair to say, because just, they're just such incredible, huge birds, aren't they? Just so exciting and evocative of, of everything. And I'd seen, been to see them on Mull. Then we went and did the 10 days on Hoy. It was just, you know, me in the wild, in the wind, looking across maybe a kilometre or so across across the hillside and looking at these birds. Um, but then, again, seeing them kind of flying free on the Isle of Wight was so exciting. And to think that you could maybe visit somewhere like Pool Harbour and be seeing ospreys and eagles at the same time, maybe, on a good day, you know, it's, it's good, isn't it? It's incredible, yeah. When I was a kid, you thought of ospreys as being in, you know, north of Scotland, mountains. We They did establish a, a pair in the Lake District that I used to go and see on holidays and things like that as well after a while. But then... White-tailed eagles were a dream bird for, you know, me growing up. And yeah. again, you just think of them as a, as wild places yeah. that you would never really end up that often unless you made a real effort. But historically, they were all over the place. So, they you know, all, everywhere. Yeah. down the country as well. So there's no reason why they couldn't be in sort of lakes and paddling pools and all sorts. Have them everywhere. <laughs> paddling pools. I love it. <laughs> that was the, the yeah, the Roy, the Roy Dennis Wildlife Foundation shared some data with us for Autumn Watch, um, which is actually all published on, on the website, on the blog there. Anybody can go and find it. But um, the birds, the six six or so chicks that were released this year were all fitted with tra satellite tracking devices. So the team can see exactly where they fly and what the trajectory is. And there's a great story about one of the birds. I think it was 10 days after it had been released. It left the island and it, and it went on this mammoth journey and it flew right over to Essex. But to get to Essex, it flew over London. And there was a couple of people who were walking along through central London, basically. I think they were near Big Ben. I forget now. And they looked up and they spotted this huge shape in the sky and wondered what it was and took a picture uh, just on their phone. Oh, it's a dreadful picture, but still, it's an it's evidence. It's a capture. Uh, and it turned out that when they reported this back, they found through the satellite tracking data that they had been in London, looked up and seen a white-tailed eagle flying right over Westminster. And so just, to think that, that mm -hmm. these birds are just cruising over the top of the capital, uh, it's so exciting. It is. It's It's brilliant, you know, seeing them coming back. I hope that we bring back that that ancient habit as well of letting them take our dead bodies. You know, you know the sky burials. I oh yes, I, I'd like. I've got my hand up for that. That's what I want. <laughs> yeah, yeah, me too. I, I always think it'd be great to be useful in death. You know, either I've, I've signed up as an organ donor, but but beyond that, well, all the bits that are left, I'd quite like the animals to make use of. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just dump you on a hill. There'll probably be health and safety reasons why that's not possible. But, you know, let's worry about that nearer the time. Let's bring it back. Which bird would you like to eat your remains? Ooh. I hear for podcast. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's, series two can, uh, can explore that. 
<laughs> That's going to bother me now. I'm going to I'm going to really think about it. <laughs> Great. So we've done two of your favourite birds, osprey and white-tailed eagle. Tell us about bird number three. Bird number three. 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 <laughs> well, why don't we just go straight to Dipper? It's white. another black and white bird that couldn't be more different to our eagle, could it? Um, I just love a dipper. I've always loved, I just love them. I love the shape of them. I like how fat they look. They're so busy. I like that they're really easy to watch. They're pretty territorial, so that if you find where they are and just sit quietly, they'll generally come back to that little rock and bob up and down. I just really like watching them. And I think within this country, they you know, they sort of signify that, that the, the rivers that they're feeding at are fairly healthy and I've got the right numbers of invertebrates for them to survive on that patch. And, you know, at this point in time, I think that's really important for us to be looking out for things like dippers. I just, I've, I think they're wonderful. I find them really charming. And uh, I remember a few, fair few years ago on Winter Watch, one of our wildlife cameramen, Lindsay McRae, he filmed one underwater. So he managed to put a little camera rig underneath the water, a frozen river, again, near the Cairng- in the Cairngorms. And we saw footage of one diving for food and underwater it looked like this kind of silver bullet. It swam down and all these bubbles kind of um, enveloped it and it just looked bright silver, swimming around, wiggling about and finding, you know, pulling out little invertebrates from under rocks and then bobbing back up to the surface. And I remember seeing that and thinking it's almost like our penguin, you know. Like yeah. a British penguin. There's this little aquatic bird that can, you know, un- it, you see it, it's quite charming above the surface anyway, but to know that all this is going on underneath is, I think, you know, I think that's amazing. It's a reason to get snorkeling in rivers, isn't it? And seeing if you can watch one. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to see one underwater like that. I, they're one of my favourite birds, actually, as well, Dibbers, for, for all the reasons you've just said. And I was chatting to Amy Jane Beer. She's a big uh, river enthusiast. So she chose Dipper and we were, we were chatting about them, but she also picked Kingfisher. And whilst re- researching Dippers a little bit more, I didn't actually realise that one of the old vernacular names for the Dipper was the King's Fisher, which is really confusing, I think. Interesting. So how come the Kingfisher got to keep that name, but the Dipper had to go with Dipper? <laughs> I think Dipper gets a, a bum deal all around when Kingfisher is obviously all beautiful and flashy and, and, you know, the one that everybody wants to see. And as I was saying with Amy, you know, there's even a paint, Kingfisher Blue. I mean, the colour of a Kingfisher has its own paint. No, Nobody's made a paint called Dipper Brown. I bet you Farrow and Bull have. <laughs> <laughs> if they haven't, I hope they do. But yeah, I wouldn't put it past them. Dipper Brown. Dipper um, Brown. I think they're fabulous. I just love them. They've got such character, haven't they? And you're right, they do sort of lose out a bit to the Kingfisher because they're not as flashy. They're not as quick. When you do see one flying, I always think that they look like you've just wound them up and then set them off, you know, like a toy. Yeah. Like, you just like yeah. it as tight as it'll go. And then you've just gone right off. You yeah. <laughs> Great little birds. Right. Moving on. What would be bird number four? Bird number four. Uh, bird number four, the bullfinch. No disrespect to Mrs. Bullfinch because she is gorgeous and I love seeing them as a pair. I think as a pair, they're just perfect. They make a perfect couple. They seem to be very respectful of each other and very sweet. I occasionally have a pair in the garden, hardly ever. But when we do, I've noticed that when they feed, they'll sit and clean each other's beaks, which is so sweet. They'll sit next to each other and do that kind of beak beak clicking thing where they wipe it. Oh, it's lovely. Um, and I remember we had a camera on one for, uh, on a spring watch nest once and it was the best. It was just a perfect little nest, clean and tidy, sweet little chicks. It was all just lovely. 
Um, but he, Mr. Bullfinch, male Bullfinch, is, I just think they're gorgeous. I think they're probably my favourite British bird to look at. I, the, something about that, the colours of them. It's just a gorgeous colour, isn't it? It's not quite pink, it's not quite red, it's not quite orange. And it's so soft and that lovely black head and the big fat beak. I think they're wonderful. And I think because I'm not really a wildlife photographer, as my Twitter handle might suggest, I do like shooting film, but I, I can't really be bothered to shoot wildlife. I just haven't got the kit, I haven't got the patience. I much prefer just looking, actually. Um, so I'm not, when I'm out and about looking, I just, I, I think I sort of, because I'm not focused on trying to get the shot and take the picture, I'm just observing for the sake of it. And I think watching something like a bullfinch is, is rewarding because they're so hard to find. You know, there's, there's, they have declined. Um, I seem to see most of them in and around hedgerows and woodland, of which we know there's not a huge amount left. But when you hit, you can hear, I've tuned, starting, I'm getting a little bit better at my bird calls. I'm starting to tune in and hearing that kind of squeaky sound they make. It's a pretty lame sound, isn't it? Yeah. That, 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 why you're so beautiful? Is that all you can manage? Exactly. You know, they're, they're really understated, aren't they? And they just kind of do this little thing. Stunning looking birds. And then that's all they do. But they can sing. They can do so much more. They just choose not to. Oh, that my goodness, can they sing? And I think in the past, um, they were often kept as caged birds. Um, and trained to sing and there is um, an archive clip in existence of one singing a kind of Austrian folk tune and it sounds like a man whistling it is pitch perfect and a really like delightful little song and I've heard it so many times now it's one of my favorite things I used to often tweet it out from the BBC Springwatch account you just cannot believe it's a bird well I'll I'll, I'll look out for that because yeah I'm just yes. used to hearing that noise when I'm out and about on my walks and, and then like, oh, look, there's a bullfinch. I, I, I'm lucky I get them in the garden, always in pairs. Do they pair, you? They pair for life as well, don't they? Oh, I know that makes them even more perfect. Yeah. I think that's why they clean each other's beaks. They've got to put up with each other and they don't like <laughs> eaters. So, you know, we're, you're, <laughs> we're, we're, we're stuck together, love. You know, let's just tart you up a bit. <laughs> you see, I'm rubbish, absolutely rubbish at bird songs and bird calls and sounds. I'm really bad. And I find all these descriptions, or it's, you know, if you read in your bird guide, or it sounds like this, and then there's phonetically, it's yeah. just ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. Or, or, you know, it's, they, or it sounds similar to the such and such. Well, of course, you've got to know what the such and such sounds like in order to compare. I, I, there needs to be a new system, I think, to help people learn. I do like those little descriptions in bird books of what the call sounds like, but I do not find them vaguely helpful. I just find them entertaining to read. Uh, yeah. The only one I, I'm really good at red wing. Yeah. But, yeah. but I think probably because I've been told they fly over, over at, at night. So it's one of the only things you're going to hear probably. Yeah. Um, so I've, I've managed to figure that one out. I'm being silly. There's a few I can do, but, but then you learn, oh, but they change their call depending on, on the threat and the predator and sometimes they mimic each other and I just, I'll forget it. Forget it. <laughs> I'm just not going to be good at that. And that's okay. <laughs> it's far too confusing. You're absolutely right. Bullfinches are one of my favourites as well. I think we've got some. Are they? Yeah. And I do love them. And I, and I think it's something to do with their stockiness, their chunkiness. It's a bit like you were saying about the dipper that you find their little fat forms pleasing. You know, I. I it's the shape, isn't it? It's just a yeah. lovely shape. They're, they're, they're lovely and round and they would just sit nicely in your hand. Oh. I, <laughs> and I always imagine, I, I don't know, I had a conversation once with uh, Fife Dangerfield on Twitter that if birds made a band, who would be, who, who would play <laughs> what instrument? And yeah. uh, 
I think we decided that a bullfinch would be a good drummer. I, I, I don't know why we decided Maybe that. Maybe the bullfinch would like have a little vest on. He'd be sat there in a vest with his guns out, basically. Absolutely. Yeah, I can, I can, I can picture that now. Yeah. Drummer, anyway. Love it. Yeah. Right. Enough nonsense from me. Let's move on to your fifth and final bird. Bird number five. Okay, well, I had a bit of trouble with this one, as you know, because you happened to mention that that other people had talked about this bird. But I think there's a really good reason for that. And I don't think you can censor us anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Um, My I think my favourite absolutely has to be the swift. I'm a bit ashamed to say it's taken us so long, but three or, in, over the last three or four years, I've been going on about getting a proper Swift box. And so we did it. Um, and we've got this beautiful box that's been installed. It's just fantastic. I think it's got six little houses in it. So we've popped that up on the side of the house. And I annoyed my neighbours this year in lockdown by playing Swift calls out the window really loud. I managed to attract a couple of birds who came and had a little look, but we were a bit too late in the season for them to actually move in and nest this year. So I'm hoping that um, if I can start, maybe I'll perhaps start in January. You never know. <laughs> maybe I'll just start really early. <laughs> no, I, I think I'll wait till perhaps about the 30th of April, first week of May, which is when we usually see them. And then I'm going to get those, I'm going to get those MP3s blasting out the window. Fantastic. I need we, I need them to move in. I just think, oh, that would be amazing. And it's right outside the, the box. is right above the bedroom window. So I might live to regret this. I hope you're not going to have Osprey levels of disappointment. You go through the hundred days when we have the Swifts here and they've not had a sniff of your box. But it sounds if you even had them looking at it this year, then it's a good sign for next year if you get the calls out earlier. They, I actually, put- they actually looked on the first day. Can you believe wow. it? So they got a, a local guy who had a long enough roofing ladder helped helped to put the box up, bless him. He left about two o'clock and then about half past four, I was playing the calls and one ke- one or two came and had a look immediately. Wow. I mean, you can imagine I was just wetting myself. We chatted a little bit about this on Twitter at the time when we were both thinking about putting boxes up and I put up a couple of boxes. Nowhere near as impressive as your box, which is just... A, I can't a, take credit for that. I didn't make it, box. but my goodness, no. it's amazing. It is amazing. It's like a it's like a Swift hotel. It's it's yeah. It's incredible. Any joy with yours? No, I played calls at the window for a couple of weeks, but you know there was no snips. But again, it was very late, so I'm going to start early this year. So you, you mentioned there that that a few people have chosen Swift as as one of their top five, and that is true. And I hadn't anticipated when I when I came up with this podcast that this would happen. That that people would obviously choose the same birds. And out of 10 people in the first series, four people have chosen Swift. And it's actually one of my top five favourite birds as well. But I'm going to rough them up a bit here now because we know they arrive in May. They stick around for 100 days or so before leaving again in late August. When you think of it like that, 100's not very long, is it? Not long at all. And we wait for them with this giddy anticipation. We put up boxes, we play them the best tunes that they like to bring them in. And then in no time at all, they nick off. They're basically that mate who thinks he's super cool, rocks up late to a party to make an entrance and then leaves early to be all mysterious and elusive. (laughs) So now I'm thinking about Swifts in these terms. And even worse, some of them, as we know, don't even touch the ground when they rock up over here from Africa, where they're really African birds, aren't they? So if they don't nest, they don't even touch the ground. So they rock up late to the party have the scran and then nick off early. I just think they're rude now. <laughs> You've convinced yourself. You've got yourself in a right old twist there. 
Um, well, you could argue on the flip side, that's also all the reasons why they're amazing, right? Is that they can turn up here all the way from Africa and still not touch the ground. In fact, I think some of them, if I think they might not breed or nest until they're about four years old. That is remarkable that they can stay in the air for four years, that they'll fly up to however many feet it is and sleep on the wing. There's this whole biomass of insects up there that we can't even, well, it's not as many as there ought to be, but there are insects up there kind of in the sky flying around in huge clouds. We can't even see them, but that's what's keeping the swifts up there. A few years ago, my uh, father-in-law used was a vicar. He's retired now, but he used to be at a church in Wiltshire, beautiful, beautiful old church. And we used to sit in the churchyard on a bench of an evening with a cold beer and the swifts would come up a hundred miles an hour and go straight up into the tiles of the church roof, into their little nests in the roof. Uh, there were loads of them, a fantastic colony. You could sit right outside in the churchyard and you'd watch them all screaming. And they, it, it looked as if they were going to just crash straight into the roof. But of course they don't. They find this imperceptibly small gap and go up into the. It was amazing. And he always says, my father-in-law, that that's, you know, one of the things he'll so dearly miss about that parish and that church was those Swifts, because aren't they, um, just to sit and watch that. Yeah, you know, you're right. They're, they're, they're incredible. I know this sounds awful, but I would really love to find a grounded one. You know, sometimes they'll have a fight or fall out of the sky. I'd absolutely love the opportunity to have one in the hand. I know. And just have a little look at how precious it is. That happened to a friend of mine this year, this summer. He found one and he, he oh. managed to release it and, and sort of, he, he, he took care of it for a few days, I think, um, and even managed to feed it, I believe. And then he let it go and it flew off, which was fantastic. But for a fair few days, he had that opportunity of seeing one really close, amazing eyes, a big mouth, those beautiful wings. I'd love to see one like that. Yeah, I've seen people's tweets. Uh, Helen McDonald, I think, had a similar experience with, with, with a swift. I saw tweets of hers and the wings, you know, when you see them like that, you know, rather than just in the sky, they just you know, like I've said before on this podcast, they're just otherworldly. They're just something else. Um, it kind of brings me full circle as well, back to the back to Springwatch and the like, because not that many years ago, I really struggled to look up and tell the difference between a swift and a swallow and a house martin. It's easy to. That's one of the things I think that's that I really like about working on the watches. It kind of keeps you you're, you're a bit grounded and reminds you that not everybody knows what these birds are and what they look like and what their stories are, where they come from, and certainly not what shape they are in the sky. You know, like that is you have to learn that you've got to study and watch and learn and take it all in. And that comes from putting the time in, doesn't it? And not everybody wants to put the time in and certainly not everybody can. You know, it's quite a privilege to be able to have time to do something as lovely as just watching wildlife. But I've definitely that's something I've definitely learned over the years through the watches is that identification and that enjoyment, and that appreciation. And I think just from working on working on the programme. I've not always been involved that that deeply and that closely in all of the wildlife stories. Often they've been developed by other colleagues and I, it's been my job to sort of represent them or tell them to the audience perhaps in a different way. But obviously in doing so, I'm absorbing all of that stuff and learning. And so, yeah, when I first started on Spring Watch, I didn't really know much about birds at all. 2013, maybe? I really didn't. I was really worried that I, I wouldn't be able to identify anything. <laughs> I don't know anything. But at the time my role was for my technical expertise in terms of the live streams and the webcams and stuff and then it's interesting I've kind of gone to the other side almost that I've uh, you know gone in terms of my knowledge and my learning I've absorbed all of that and that's true of a lot of people that work on it actually people that who don't need to understand or know about wildlife have inadvertently or perhaps you know because of being around it they've ended up building a beehive or 
uh, joining the RSPB or, you know, people that, you know, the guys that run the generators or the people that do the catering, they can't, they can't help it. Yeah, it's it's going back to what we were saying about it being infectious, isn't it? Wildlife and the love of nature, you, you sort of, when you're gradually introduced to it in that way, then then it is infectious and it, it becomes a part of you and then you cross to the dark side of uh, being a bird nerd or a wildlife nerd uh, before Absolutely. you Absolutely. But it's a good thing. Well, Laura, it's been an absolute delight, but as you know, this ain't no picnic show here. You have chosen the five thirds that will accompany you on your journey to find civilization in the post-apocalyptic wasteland that we are surely heading for. Yay! Only one can be your favourite asbestos bird, the one that you must face up against my mighty peregrine falcon in the frankly juvenile and ludicrously reductive Golden Grenades juvenile and ludicrously reductive best bird showdown. So, which bird is it going to be? Gosh, that's a toughie, isn't it? It is. I've got you've quite the one. list. You've got five corkers there. I think I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna choose swift. Your peregrine has the edge, being the fastest animal on earth. I think I'm gonna go with the white-tailed eagle. I think that's all round a terrifically impressive bird, being so abs, just so majestic. They are an incredible beast of a bird. And anything that's bigger than a golden eagle is a feat in itself. And that beak and that beak, the, oh, the beak and the talons. Yeah, and I, I, part of me does love the fact that people were scared of them because they had their reputation for carrying off children. I quite like. <laughs> and, the, and there's even a pub in Oxford, isn't there, called the the Eagle and Child? I is think. there really? Yeah. And it's where uh, J.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis used to meet to, to get drunk and write their books. That sounds like a good pub pilgrimage. Um, I think their, their adaptability, the fact that they can kind of survive and eat pretty much anything, that they can catch so many different... We, we saw um, Gordon Buchanan for Springwatch this year. He filmed for us a white-tailed eagle swooping down and having a go at a deer. It was a fully grown deer swimming incredible. across a lock in Scotland. And this bird, I mean, whether or not it would have gone for the deer, actually gone for it and tried to pick it up, we don't know. But it was going for it, if that makes sense. It Might have just wanted a ride. Well, yeah, <laughs> it pretty much nearly landed on it. I just think they're so ballsy. They are. And, 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 you know, just a few flaps of the wings and it can get itself, from, you know, a few hundred miles, barely any effort. And like you say, they're very adaptable, but so is the peregrine. It's adapted by moving into cities and it's... it's That's true, well but I have seen white-tailed eagles setting up colonies on the edge of Helsinki. So they have also moved into our cities. Mm, and there was one, that one over London that you mentioned earlier. That's true. Peregrine didn't need help to come back, though. It, you know, it just did its <laughs> own thing. But you know what? You know, I'm judge and jury on this stupid format that I've decided. And I've got the <laughs> decision. So... For the sake of entertainment, I'm going to concede this one and I'm going to declare that this week's Golden Grenades winner is Laura's White-Tailed Eagle. Yes! <laughs> I, knew you, I knew you'd come round. <laughs> well, it's an, been an absolute pleasure chatting to you today. Thanks so much for coming on. It's been great. Thank you. Can you give me an idea of what we can expect from you in 2021? I'd really like to leave my postcode and just get out and about and see some friends, just do some normal stuff, you know, get out, go bird watching, 
Um, I know my local patch very well now, but I'd love to go somewhere else. That'd be really nice. I think we all would, wouldn't we? And hopefully I've got some really exciting projects coming up. I've got my fingers crossed. But yeah, I've got, I'm working at the moment with a young filmmaker, super exciting, who's been on an amazing expedition to a very remote place to film an enigmatic cat. And I'll tell you more about that one soon. Um, but that should be a fantastic series of films. And um, yeah, for me personally, I'm, I'm hoping to get my teeth into a lovely kind of a real a, a, a new project with proper conservation focus and really pull together all of that experience from the watches to kind of get people super engaged with wildlife. Fantastic. Well, we'll look forward to that. Thanks so much again for coming on, Laura. Thank you for having me. Well, that's all for this week, folks. Please pop back next week when my special guest will be the wonderful professional storyteller, Malcolm Green. Until then, bye for now.